Sunday morning, we're studying the book of 1 Corinthians together in a series entitled Christian Living in a Pagan World. If you're with us this morning, you don't have a Bible. Men are coming up the aisles with Bibles right now. And if you just wave and get their attention, they'll be happy to get a Bible uh, into your hands. And then please, if you don't own a Bible, we want everybody to own a Bible. Make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you today. I'll be with you in just a moment. It's not a very good start today, is it? It's like I'm back in junior high, struggling every day. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Now concerning things offered to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. And if anyone thinks that he knows anything, he knows nothing yet, as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, this one is known by him. And therefore, concerning the eating of things offered to idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world, and that there's no God, other God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, Uh, as there are many gods and many lords, lots of different false things that people worship. Yet for us there is one God, the Father of whom are all things, and we for him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through through whom are all things and through whom we live. However, there is not in everyone that knowledge, For some with the consciousness of the idol until now eat it as a thing offered to an idol. And their conscience being weak is defiled. But food doesn't commend us to God. For neither if we eat are we the better, nor if we do not eat are we the worse. But beware lest somehow this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to those who are weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple the little deli there. Will not the conscience of him who is weak be emboldened to eat those things offered to idols? And because of your knowledge, shall the weaker brother perish for whom Christ died? But when you thus sin against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. And therefore, if food makes my brother stumble... I will never again eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, for this passage. And our hearts, our minds, our spirit, these things that you've given us, Lord, to set upon you, they're eager to receive from you. And we're eager to receive the riches of this passage into our lives and to have it fashion and mold our relationship with you and our understanding, Lord, of you and of how we can glorify you and be a blessing to your body and to your people. And so we ask that you would speak to us through your word to our individual lives this morning. And we ask for that great miracle to occur. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. We remember that in this part of 1 Corinthians that the Apostle Paul is answering specific questions that have been asked of him by way of letter by the Christians who are in Corinth. So these are needs, these are rubber meets the road issues that they're dealing with in that local church. And Paul addresses them. And that's one of the reasons that 1 Corinthians is very much a rubber meets the road kind of letter in the New Testament. It is very, very practical. It is very, very nuts and bolts. And sometimes you come to a passage like this and people think, well, what in the world does this have to do with me? Well, it has a lot to do with us, as we'll see in just uh, a few moments here. But it is passages like this 
and books like 1 Corinthians that hold the church together. Sometimes you can walk out of a service and you can think to yourself, well, that didn't seem to like move heaven and earth, at least in my own heart. It doesn't make me want to jump up and dance or anything like that. And sometimes we fail to realize that there are passages that do that and they're wonderful. And then there's other passages that just do a quiet thing inside of us. And we say, that really didn't make much of a difference in the body. And what we don't realize is the church at Corinth was a church that was fragmenting. It was splitting. And it was a church that was going to split in any one of ten different directions. And as God begins to address these different issues that become um, a, a cause for division in individual relationships and also within a local church, quietly without people even knowing as these things are addressed and as they're solved, the church is held together as a result of that. And so it does a great work. And Paul began addressing their questions and answering their questions by addressing the questions that they had related to marriage and the marriage relationship. And immediately after now, he begins in this second question that he starts to answer having to do with the appropriateness of eating the meat of an animal offered in a pagan sacrifice. And this isn't a question question that we deal with very much. When we go to the store to buy something, we go to a discount store to buy meat, or we go to a, a butcher place to buy meat, or inexpensive or expensive or whatever it is, and We never really ask, was this offered unto idols or not? It's not an issue for us in this culture, but it has application for us. And it was a situation that every single Christian in Corinth was having to deal with as a part of their uh, Christian life. And it was common really beyond Corinth and in the whole ancient world. The situation was this. As a major Greek city, Corinth was filled with all kinds of temples where there was the worship of the Greek gods went on, the Roman gods, and all kinds of other gods and idols that had uh, were being worshipped by all kinds of people all over the world. This was a, a center for false religion and a center for religion, period. It was just uh, everywhere you wanted to turn, there were temples all over the place. And... As a part of the worship of these false gods, these gods, they would offer animal sacrifices as an expression of their worship to uh, the gods. And the less desirable portions of the animals, like the intestines, um, the bones, the fat, they would take those portions and they would offer them in a fire on an altar to the false god. And the reason they offered those parts of the body to the gods was because the fat gave off the most smoke and they viewed the smoke as being their prayer and their worship ascending up to this god. But you've got the sacrifice of goats, you've got the sacrifice of sheep, you've got the sacrifice of cattle, bulls to these false gods, And so these constitute a very small portion of the animal. So the family or the group of people that would come and offer, say, a bull, the rest of the bull was theirs to eat. I don't know if you've ever sat down to eat a bull. They're they're big. And uh, they didn't have refrigeration and a freezer at home that you could kind of butcher them and store them away and all. And so, And sometimes when they would offer animals at these various uh, temples. Uh, sometimes they'd offer as many as a hundred bulls at a time. Were you going to, you know, you'd offer what you'd offer to the gods. The people would then eat as much as they could ever eat. And you're left with a lot of meat. And so what they would then do is take that meat and they would sell it at a discount at the kind of the market or the store associated with the temple. And and so all of these very choice pieces of meat would be offered then at a, 
uh, doubtless a lower price than was being, meat was being sold for in the common marketplace. And this kind of thing was a daily occurrence in a city as large as Corinth. With all the idols and all of the temples and all the everything, there was this constant flow of meat that had been offered to false gods, uh, flooding the marketplace for people to buy. Well, some Christians looked at things and said, offered to idols, schmeidel, an idol is nothing. And uh, so being budget conscious, they're not going to pay retail down at the marketplace when they're selling the same cuts of meat, even better cuts of meat, over at the idol uh, temple for half the price. And so they would go down there in their daily shopping trips to buy food for the day, and they would buy their meat uh, there that had been offered uh, unto idols. And they knew that the meat was completely unaffected by the idolatry surrounding it. In their minds, they look at it and say, all right, the meat has the same nutritional value. It has the same flavor as, as any other meat. It's not affected by uh, this worship thing that went on all around it. They would buy it. They would uh, then take it home and they would eat it. Now, there were other Christians with a completely different conscience who would watch other Christians do this and they were shocked and horrified by it. They couldn't believe that a Christian would ever go to an idolatrous temple and buy meat there and take it home and eat it. In their minds, that meat is completely defiled by virtue of association with the rite that had been uh, practiced, the sacrifice of that animal. And it created quite a bit of a problem between the Christians there and the church at Corinth, and thus their question to the Apostle Paul. Now, before we move on, I want you just to stop and think for a moment. Which group would you uh, be in? Which type of Christian would you be the more sympathetic to? And each of us would fall into our, that camp. They would say, listen, you can save a buck, get over there and save a buck. Or you look and say, I don't care how much it would cost me, I'd never, ever eat anything that was associated with idolatry in the city that I live in or anywhere and when you identify, we identify ourselves because most of us are going to lean into one direction or the other, then that allows us to see how the passage is intended to speak to us. Paul begins to answer this dispute by declaring in verse 1, we know that we all have knowledge. In other words, as Christians, we all know certain things about idols and idolatry. And he goes on to list the things that every Christian knows related to uh, idolatry or what we should know. He said in verse 4, we know that an idol is nothing in the world. These statues, these things that they worshipped, they have no reality. Paul's saying they're just the creation of man's hands, they're the creation of man's minds. They don't exist except in people's minds. They have no power at all in the world. They only have power, the power and the influence that a person is willing to give them in their mind. They're zip, they're zero, they're nothings in terms of their power or their ability to impact the world around us. They have no more power to do anything or say anything or accomplish anything than the barbecue or the swing set in your backyard. So people can offer all the sacrifices that they want to these things, but it doesn't change the fact that they are a non-existent God, and non-existent gods cannot contaminate food offered on their altar. The second thing that we all know, he tells us in verse 4, is that there's no other God but one. And he further tells us that that God is none other than the God that we worship and serve. That is God the Father of whom are all things and we for him. We serve the God who made man's mind. He made man's hands. In fact, he's made everything that is made. And 
we also worship and serve the Lord Jesus, he said, through whom are all things and through whom we live. And thus, these idols, Paul is saying, they constitute no threat to our God or to us. Now, later in the epistle, Paul is going to say that there is a demonic element behind the idolatry, but demons are not gods with a large uppercase G or a lowercase uh, G. So he's saying these are not gods. They're nothing. They're not influential at all. He further goes on to say in terms of what each of us as Christians knows or is to know about um, idolatry, that the food, that food does not commend us to God for neither if we eat it are we the better nor if we do not eat it, are we the worse? Jesus spoke to the religious leaders of his day, and he said it isn't what goes into a person's mouth that defiles them, but what comes out of their mouth is what defiles. And so this is the knowledge that we possess as Christians. In other words, eating meat to idols isn't harmful in any way. It isn't harmful to us physically. It isn't harmful to us spiritually in any way. But he goes on to tell us in verse 7, every Christian doesn't have this knowledge that there are Christians when they try to eat the meat that's been offered to an idol, all they can think about is the idol that it was offered to. And no matter how much you tell them that idols are nothing, that the meat is unaffected, it's just a steak like any other steak. It's just as nutritious for you. It's just as good for you. No matter what you try to tell them to the contrary, they walk away with a defiled conscience. And, and, uh, related to this. And if they were to eat that meat, their conscience would be defiled. And the word defiled literally means to be soiled or to be made dirty as with mud or with filth. So for them, because all they can, they don't think about meat first. They think about the idols. If they were to partake, then their conscience tells them that they've done something wrong. They've done something uh, dirty. And now because they feel they've done that, uh, then when they try to approach God in their relationship uh, with the Lord, they don't have a clear conscience and it causes them to tumble down into a very, very deep uh, self-condemnation. And nobody ever, ever wants to go uh, there. Now it's important to notice, and he tell, speaks of it in verses 7 and 12, that Paul declares the conscience of this kind of person to be weak. Now, that's fascinating. Because we would be prone to think that Paul would commend the more legalistic brother as being the stronger Christian or as having the stronger conscience. But he doesn't do that. He says that is the weaker brother, and they have the weaker conscience. I want you to notice further that Paul declares them, that kind of a Christian, to also be a weak brother and not a strong brother. And he mentions it in verse 9, verse 10, verse 11. Again, the natural tendency would be to think, wow, that is a strong Christian. That's how we all ought to be. And Paul says, no, that isn't how we all ought to be. That is a weaker brother. That is not a stronger brother. Now, this can start to play with your minds a little bit. And that's why the passage is so important uh, uh, to us. A natural bent toward legalism in a person's life is not an evidence of spiritual strength. It's an evidence of weakness. And it is the weakness of thinking that I am somehow better or worse in God's sight based upon issues that don't matter to him at all. And that's a weaker brother. This kind of person is not necessarily 
that's being addressed here is not necessarily a full-blown legalist in uh, the pattern of the Pharisees of Jesus' day. But this kind of person, when he becomes a Christian by personality or by indoctrination or by life experience, it is his tendency to be stricter upon himself and more demanding upon him of himself than what is in the Scriptures. This type of person is typically very eager to please God, has a strong desire to please uh, God, and thus he is prone to believe that if God says in his word, do X, then doing three times X must be even more good, and so he does that. And the problem with this tendency is that sooner or later, this kind of person will often not merely be content to do that with God's commandments, but he will then take that mindset into liberties that all of us have as Christians. And he will then say, this is the mindset that I'm going to have govern not only my own Christian liberties, but everybody's Christian liberties. And when he does that, it's always at the expense of Christian liberties. And all the while, this kind of brother is convinced that they're simply being more spiritual or more serious than all of these other Christians, when the very opposite is true. The fact of the matter is, is that God knows exactly where he wants lines drawn concerning Christian liberties, and he knows exactly how he wants to be represented before the world in this regard. And he does not want our help. And typically, the weaker brother has no idea that they're doing this kind of thing. This is how they operate. This is their personality. This is their whatever. And it takes a passage like this and a work of the Holy Spirit to move them from that. But typically, they're in this mode, and they have no idea that they're doing this thing to themselves. I think it's also important to understand this, that most often the weaker brother, as he does this, he's being completely honest He's being completely genuine in all of this. It is uh, where they are in their understanding of God, in their understanding of grace, in their understanding of Christianity. It is an immature understanding of Christianity, but they haven't yet grown to a place to understand that or to recognize that yet. So this person isn't deliberately trying to be difficult or to be a hardship to other people. These are his convictions that he's still trying to work through, and the Holy Spirit hasn't had the final say in his life on them yet. Now, this passage is not telling us to accommodate the legalistic bent of a brother who wants to conform all Christians to his views on Christian liberties and then to bring every Christian into the same bondage that he is in. This weaker brother is, he's a couple of degrees short of being a legalist. He's different from that. The, league, the person who's a legalist who brings legalism to bear upon Christian liberties and says, I'll be the, I will be the decider of what you can and you cannot do. I'll fill in the blanks that God doesn't in his word. And here's what everybody needs to do related to Christian liberties. That kind of a person is to be resisted, uh, not to be accommodated or to be lovingly considered as the weaker brother is in this passage. They're two entirely different people, and it's important that we understand uh, all of that. If you allow the legalistic person to set the tone, 
He's proud. He's arrogant. He's not struggling. He's proud. He's arrogant. He knows what all Christians should or shouldn't do, not only related to God's commandments, but related to where there's broader liberty for Christians, and he's going to impose that upon everyone. If that person is allowed to prevail within Christianity or within a local church, then Christianity will ultimately become characterized by the weakest brother in the church. Uh, the, uh, the person you wouldn't want to model Christianity after in any way. And then what happens is, is if that kind of person prevails, then a Christianity that looks nothing like Jesus and it looks nothing like what is in his word is now put before the entire world and then the world ends up rejecting that because they know nothing of Christ. All they know is what legalistic people have attached to Christianity and put at the forefront Minoring in these issues, that's all people can see. They think that's Christianity. They say, I don't want anything to do with it, and they walk away. And Christianity is formed by the weakest people within the body of Christ, if that person is allowed to prevail. God's commandments are good for everyone. That's why they're commandments. Areas of liberty are not necessarily good for everyone. Some of them may be good for you, and some of them may not be good for you. And that's why God gives us the freedom to choose out of seeking him and seeking the wisdom of the Holy Spirit. Liberties are to be left alone between the individual And the Holy Spirit to determine, does God want this liberty to be a part of my life? That is not to be determined by some brother or sister with a naturally legalistic bent. And so there's a difference between the two. And the difference essentially between the weaker brother and the legalist is that the weaker brother only brings himself under his excessive standard. The legalist wants to bring everyone else under their excessive standard. And that's a difference, and it's a key difference. Now, the specific issue that Paul is dealing with concerning the Christians in Corinth had to do with uh, offering meat, uh, eating meat that was offered to idols. But the larger issue that he's addressing here is how we as Christians are to deal with Christian liberties. And I've already used that word a lot in the sermon, so maybe we ought to uh, define it in some way. What is Christian liberty? It is the freedom from God. And God gives freedom. It is the freedom from God to do whatever you want in matters that the Bible does not specifically address or condemn. That the Bible doesn't encourage, that the Bible doesn't forbid things that the Bible is silent on. And as a result, things that a Christian is perfectly free to engage in or not engage in as they choose. And regarding these kind of issues, a Christian is free to have their own convictions on the subject. We're free to have our own convictions about individual Christian uh, liberties. And there's nothing wrong with that at all. So long as we don't impose those convictions on somebody else. All of the convictions that I have personally concerning individual Christian liberties, I hold those convictions because I believe that they are right for me. And there's nothing wrong with that. The problem is, if I then say, because they are right for me, they are right for everybody else, and I impose them on uh, everyone uh, else. And so God's commandments, again, those are right for everyone. 
But not every Christian liberty is right for every single Christian. Now, let me be quick to add a word about what Christian liberty is not. Christian liberty is not an excuse to disobey any commandment of God. God's commandments are always to be obeyed. It is not a liberty to disobey God's commandments. Those two entirely different things. The reason I mention that is that very often in this passage in verse 1, you have this, uh, speaks of the fact that knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. And people fail to realize that this is speaking to a very specific situation. It speaks, it's speaking to the fact of how we are to handle Christian liberties and how we are to handle weaker brothers concerning those issues. And so today there's this idea that knowledge just puffs you up. You know the Bible. You know all of these things. But the, but when somebody's disobeying the Word of God, we don't need to apply God's Word to that or knowledge to that. We need to apply love to that. That's not what the passage is saying at all. Um, the most loving thing that a person can do is obey God's word. That's the heart of God behind all of his commandments. And so we are not free at all uh, or have the liberty to engage in anything that the Bible uh, prohibits. Now let's talk a little bit because um, there's a need to do this because otherwise you, all we're going to do is go to Costco after the service, and when they've got those little Frank and Bean samples in the aisle, and you say, was this offered to an idol? No, it wasn't. And, okay, I can partake of it. So we've got to really bring this down to where we live, because this isn't going on normally around uh, most of our lives. So what are some of the examples of liberties that we deal with as Christians in our culture? Well, you know, in the not-so-distant past... Among many Christians in the United States, there was great resistance to women who profess Christ uh, to wear makeup. It was a big issue. And some felt very, very strongly that if a woman, a Christian woman, wore makeup, they were becoming worldly, and thus it was a sin. And then there were other Christians uh, and that felt that women had a complete liberty to wear makeup, and that indeed, uh, for some women, it was a sin if they didn't wear makeup. <laughs> just kidding, just kidding. So the world has moved forward, Christianity has, in the decades since I've been a Christian, and realized, you know, those were convictions of certain people early in the establishment of the denomination or in the church or in this or that. But, you know, we recognize that a woman has the freedom based upon her own conscience between her and God to not wear makeup if she feels that that is what is right for her or to wear makeup if she feels that is uh, right for her to do. It's a liberty and it's between them and the Lord and uh, those who have a personal conviction, again, I said, they, they can disregard it if they feel that they uh, shouldn't do that. But, uh, of course, we have to be careful to heed Peter's warning in his first epistle that uh, for women that your beauty is not solely your outward beauty, but that your supreme concern in life is with your inward beauty. That should never get turned around, makeup or no makeup. In the not-so-distant past in our culture, there was very, very heavy pressure on men to wear suits and ties uh, to church. And in some respects, it was a wonderful thing because you wore your best to church. Why wouldn't you wear your best for God? It was a sign of respect in the hearts of many people. And so this great pressure began to form for all of the men to wear uh, suits and it took a little while for people to realize that there's nothing in the Bible about wearing a suit to church and it's not commanded uh, by God 
The Bible teaches that every Christian is to dress modestly, but then beyond that, uh, we can seek the Lord for what it is that we're going to wear. There's no mention uh, about uh, suits and ties. Well, uh, today Christians have come a long way in that regard, and now almost everybody recognizes that what a person wears to church, as long as it's modest, that's an area of Christian liberty. And a person is free to have very strong convictions that they can then apply to their own personal life, whether it's in wearing a suit or tie or abstaining from wearing a suit and tie. And recognizing this issue to be a liberty issue rather than a sin issue has been very, very good. And I remember in my own lifetime uh, the pressure that there was in terms of women wearing certain things, men wearing certain things to church, and, and you had to wear your Sunday best and all of these different things, and a person's heart could be absolutely right before the Lord. That was their conviction. That was their liberty. They could do that, but the problem was is then to say, well, I believe this, so everyone needs to believe this. And then what happened? Some of you remember. I remember street witnessing as a brand new Christian, and I'd invite people to church, and it wasn't unusual for someone to say, I don't have anything nice to wear to go to church. Now, somehow in their mind now, the weaker element within the body of Christ had put forth before the culture in such a way that in people's minds, what a person wore to church was more important than what happened in the church. And so people felt uncomfortable. I don't own a nice enough outfit of clothes in my closet to go to church. And so they stayed away from church. This is why there has to be great care related to liberty. It can be it can end up having consequences that we don't even realize that it's having. That's why they are liberties and why they are not uh, commandments and why it's important not to impose our view upon other people. Now, today, one of the great hot subjects that everybody's discussing is the drinking of alcohol by Christians. And that is a liberty that's getting a lot of attention. And uh, people have very, very strong opinions on it. Um, I have a a pastor friend who uh, he pastors a Calvary chapel, and his convictions are very, very strong on this, that no Christian in no way is to ever drink a drop of alcohol, that it's sin and that it's wrong. And those convictions are convictions that he communicates, comes forth from uh, the pulpit. And uh, sometimes when I hear that, I uh, look at uh, my understanding of the Scriptures is that that goes too far, that the Bible does not condemn uh, the partaking of any and all alcohol on the part of a Christian. The Christian, the Bible is very clear that no Christian is ever to get drunk. And no Christian is ever to get a buzz on. Well, I don't quite get drunk, but man, I feel good. <laughs> it helps me get through, I'll tell you. I think the Holy Spirit's supposed to do that in your life as a Christian and not uh, a bottle of wine or a glass of wine. And so the Bible says, be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be being filled with the Holy Spirit. Paul wrote to Timothy, and he said Timothy was having stomach problems, and evidently from missionaries, they're drinking water sources that they haven't uh, had before, and they don't have the, you know, the things in their body to fight off these various bugs. And Paul wrote, and he said, take a little wine for your constant infirmity, your stomach problems. And uh, so clearly you can't come in and say, no Christian can ever drink a drop of alcohol or they can't have a glass of wine uh, with a a meal or or, uh, something like that. Now, personally, I abstain from drinking alcohol for uh, several reasons. And the supreme reason is really out of this passage. It isn't because I don't have the liberty to do that. 
but I wouldn't want to stumble anyone if they were to see me out having dinner in a restaurant and then come up and say, oh, hi, Pastor Damien, and I got a little brewski in front of me, uh, I've got a glass of wine in front of me. There are some people who would look at that and they wouldn't even blink. But in our culture in general, it would create a crisis for a person. Um, people talk all the time. I have friends that, that say, well, you know, over in... Christians say this all the time, too. Over in Germany, you know, they just hoist the brews and the ales after and nobody even thinks anything about that. That's great. I don't know anything about Germany. I minister in the United States of America. And I don't know how great that is to have Christians drinking in that kind of a way is going for the cause of Christ in Germany. I haven't been there to examine that. But I don't want anyone to ever, ever come into contact with me, not a child, not an adult, that that stumbles them, creates a crisis for them, and then makes it more difficult for them uh, to hear the teaching of God's Word through my life. And so it's not worth the aggravation. It's not worth it at all. And so I say to that liberty, uh, put it aside. It's not like I'm craving it or something. This is a big sacrifice on my part. But I know that I have liberty, but I don't want to stumble uh, a weaker brother. And I never know who that weaker brother is. And I never know who is out and about when I'm out and about and uh, who is watching we could go on, speaking of Christian liberties, we could go on to talk about the celebrating of Christmas and Easter. There are people who have, Christians have, they are adamant that that, it, that should never, ever be a part of a Christian's life. And others, they just think, listen, relax uh, <laughs> over that. It's like an idol. The idol is nothing. Whatever it was when it all started way back when is not what it is in our culture today, and it's not what we're celebrating. And so they feel that they have strong convictions, that it's a liberty uh, to engage in. Some people uh, have strong convictions about having a Christmas tree or strong convictions about watching television or going uh, to the movies. And much of what's at the movies and much of what's on television is sin. That is not a liberty. We're not free to watch that stuff. But there's a lot that's on there that is uh, neither good nor bad for us, uh, spiritually speaking. And there's a liberty uh, to uh, watch those things. Or we could go on to speak about novels or can a Christian, you know, love science fiction, you know, reading that kind of stuff? Or can they listen to uh, secular music? Or it uh, goes on to people looking and having convictions about uh, the highest quality or the, how expensive of a car can another Christian uh, drive or buy? Or the homes that people live in or other possessions that they have? Or uh, do Christians really have the liberty to be an Oakland Raider fan? <laughs> I have friends in the church who are Oakland Raider fans, and that was for them. They have the liberty, and other of us, others of us don't. <laughs> Until they stop those penalties and breaking our heart in the last quarter of every game. Now we come to our final point before closing. And let me just say that any serious Christian who wants to one day hear, well done, from the lips of, of Jesus, is very, very wise not to spend their entire life exploring their Christian liberties. We can spend our whole Christian lives identifying Christian liberties and engaging in Christian liberties and never then focus the time that is required upon God's call and His purposes for our life. And that's why the Apostle Paul wrote to this church at Corinth, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12, he said, All things are lawful for me, but all things are not helpful. He said in that same verse, all things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. Later in chapter 10, he says, all things are lawful for me. I've got liberties like crazy, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but, but not all things 
edify. And the Apostle Paul purposely set a standard for what he allowed into his life, and the standard that he set was higher than, is this a liberty or is it not a liberty? And Paul said concerning his life, if it wasn't helpful, if it didn't help him grow spiritually and then his relationship with the Lord and God's call upon his life, out it went. If anything had the slightest possibility of bringing him under its power or enslaving him in some way, starting to get him involved in addictive behavior toward whatever, then out it went. If something didn't build him up spiritually, then out it went. It's very, very strict, the standard that Paul set his life to. But he commended to the Christians and to us to give it consideration. And it is strict. I'll tell you, the person that lives their life under that standard can be absolutely confident that one day they will hear, that one day, one day hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of the Lord. And that's the only thing that matters. Now let me close with this by looking at what is to be the response of the stronger brother to the weaker brother in a situation where some liberty of ours can really genuinely cause them to stumble in their relationship with the Lord. He said, number one, in verse one, we are to choose love over knowledge regarding our liberties, not knowledge over love. And here's how the proud man who possesses only knowledge uh, responds to the weaker brother. He'll say something like this. Now, you listen. I, I have every right to engage in this activity, and I defy you to find one verse in the Bible that says I can't. Now, get off my back and go lay your trip on someone else. So he's got knowledge but doesn't have any love. Well, some variation of that. And in verses 2 and 3... Paul declares that that kind of person knows nothing yet about the Lord. Nothing about his nature, nothing about his character, nothing about his love, nothing about his heart. And if a person thinks that he is an authority on uh, anything uh, but God, but uh, about God, but he lacks a other-centered love for people, then that person doesn't know anything yet. Jesus said the two great commandments are to love God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, number one. And number two, to love our neighbor as ourself. The importance of love to God. Then he tells us how we're to respond, how love responds to the weaker brother. And the first thing we need to do, verse 9, is we need to put ourselves in their shoes. Putting ourselves in the shoes of another person can really produce an understanding of them and a love for them. So we look at the weaker brother, and we listen to the weaker brother, and as we, come to, as we do that, we come to realize that they're not struggling because they're trying to be difficult, but because this issue is a genuine stumbling block to them. And there can be no doubt that many of the Christians in the church at Corinth had come out of an idolatrous background. They had been to those temples. They had seen the rites. They had been to the services. They had watched what this worship of these false gods had turned people uh, into. They had experienced the spiritual emptiness of all of it, the demonic darkness of all of it, and they never wanted to have anything to do with that ever again on any level. And then you got Joe Blow Christian over here who becomes a Christian, but he doesn't become a Christian out of an idolatrous background. He'd never been a part of the worship of Artemis or Diana in Corinth. And so that person could go to the temple, get a cheap steak, enjoy it because he had no association with it. He has no history with idolatry in that way. And when a person stops and thinks, yes, if I were in their shoes, I might be struggling the same way. And in the same way today, Some Christians have a stricter view concerning alcohol because they watched it destroy their father and their mother, their son, their daughter, or because it was a part 
of a nightmarish childhood or because before they became a Christian it took them into bondage. And so they struggle with trying to find a balance related to that liberty. Then you have some Christians who struggle with any and all secular music because whenever they hear it, it takes them back to unpleasant experiences associated with the music, the drinking, the drugs, the partying, and all of this, and they don't want any part of it for the rest of their lives. But somebody else listens to the same music, and it doesn't have those associations at all for them from their past. So they'll handle their liberty sometimes a little differently. And then some people become Christians out of a past of trying to find fulfillment in the amassing of material things. It was bigger, 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 more, 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 more. Then they become a Christian, and when they see that, then continue in the lives of other Christians that they know. They know what a dead-end street that it is, that it's all emptiness in terms of... uh, uh, making that the master passion of their life. And so they become strict in their life in that way, stricter than others. And I'm saying that this area of liberties were colored by many things. And it isn't just someone being hard-headed or they're being stubborn. They can be carrying a lot of baggage into their Christian life that only God and they know about. The second thing we need to do is that we are not to embolden them to sin against their conscience. Don't ever flaunt, Paul is saying, your Christian liberties as a way to change them. Let the Holy Spirit change their consciences. And so you, the tendency of some people is they're going to do like a tough love thing here. All right, they take the weak brother by the neck. You're coming to my house, and I bought two steaks at the temple of Diana, and I'm going to cook these up and we're both going to eat them and I'm going to eat one right in front of you so you can see that um, it doesn't affect my relationship with God. I still can remember my memory verse from this week. is nothing to any of this and then I'm going to make you eat it also with me so that you can get uh, you know, through this and on the other side of it. And so you kind of compel them to eat uh, the steak. Sometimes you can succeed in getting the person to eat it, but because they've sinned against their conscience, they then tumble down into a condemnation that their faith might not recover from because they have sinned against their conscience. I never, ever attempt to talk a person out of the convictions of their conscience concerning liberties. I never try to do that. That has to happen between them and God because I can push a person too far and they may do something in my presence, walk away and spend the next three weeks in a downward spiritual spiral between them and God because of the condemnation that they feel and the violation of their conscience. Those things need to be left between a person and God. And God knows how to change our convictions related to liberties and to broaden them. I've walked with the Lord since 1980, and my convictions have never been stronger in terms of obeying God's commandments. And yet never in my Christian life have I been less concerned about liberties and making a big deal about liberties And I understand everything about the weaker brother. That's the camp I come out of in terms of natural bent. And the Lord is able to take a person from that place and bring them into a broader place, a better place. The Holy Spirit is able to do that. Paul wrote to the Romans and he said, But he who doubts is condemned if he eats. Because he does not eat from faith, for whatever is not of faith is sin. And to him who considers anything to be unclean, then to him it is unclean. The third thing is that we're to remember that Christ loves the weaker brother and died for him. And that Christ loves that weaker brother as much as he loves me. And he died for that weaker brother every bit as much as he died for me. 
And the idea there in verse 11 is that if Jesus was willing to lay down his life in order to save that weaker brother, then why shouldn't I be able to, as a Christian, as one who claims to be a Christ follower and Christ-like, why shouldn't I be willing to do the lesser thing of laying down my liberties for the good of that weaker brother? And it's a penetrating question. And then in verse 4, verse 12, fourth, we're to realize that if I exercise my liberties at the expense uh, of, to the faith of another Christian, it's sin. And I'm not only sinning against that weaker brother. All right, I'm going to show you. I'm not only sinning against that weaker brother, but Paul says, I'm sinning against Christ. Wow. How so? Because that weaker brother is still a part of the body of Christ. And we're to have a concern for the whole body of Christ. And thus Paul says in verse 13, If food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat again. I heard one preacher say, speak of this as hyperbole from Paul. Don't you believe it? He meant it. That's the love that he had for every single Christian. Sometimes in the United States or other areas where there's lots of Christians, it seems like they're just a dime a dozen, we get fat and sassy in our attitude toward other Christians. We just begin to take them for granted. There's so many of them. If I burn the bridge of a relationship to that one, I got a, there's a million more that I can establish another relationship with. But missionaries don't do that. There are some parts of the world that it takes 10 years of faithfulness to God's calling for one convert. And the attitude of that missionary toward an individual Christian is way different than the attitude that we will typically have toward another Christian. And in parts of the world where Christians are very few and very far between, a person learns to treasure them. And you're not going to burn them, and you're not going to fry them, and you're not going to destroy them, and you're not going to tumble them down into condemnation. You're not going to do anything to harm them. And you think about the Apostle Paul who paid for, in a sense, every single convert, everyone that came to know the Lord through his ministry, he paid for that with his own blood, his own beatings, his own hardship. And when you've done that, you view Christians in a different way. Whether they're weak or whether they're strong. You love them all, and you prize them all. And so Paul said, I'd rather give up meat altogether than stumble a single uh, brother. And our culture in the United States, it so nurtures uh, selfism and selfishness that even as Christians, we can become all about our rights and all about our freedoms and all about our liberties, and we start to elevate them above the spiritual welfare of another Christian. And it's very ugly, and it's very small, and it looks nothing like Christ. And it's important for us to hear Paul's message, the message of the Holy Spirit, Spirit through this passage. It isn't a sin, Paul says to these stronger Christians. It is not a sin to eat meat offered to idols. But it is a sin to elevate my knowledge above love in a situation that is dangerous to a weaker brother's faith and their relationship with the Lord. And so the lesson of the passage is this. In the area of Christian liberties, it is love that is to guide the expression of those liberties and not our knowledge. And that is an important truth for keeping the body of Christ unified and all of our diversity and all of our maturity and our immaturity. 
And it's an important lesson for us to hear as Christians in a culture that is so selfish. Let's stand together and we'll pray. Thank you, Father, for your truth. We thank you for all of the amazing variety of things that you address in your word. We pray that you would take this passage of Scripture and deeply apply it to our lives, whether we are a weaker brother or a stronger brother. Show us how it's to play itself out, Lord, in our relationship with other Christians, not just in this church, but in the body of Christ as a whole. And, Lord, we pray that it would dominate our thinking and our doing and our future contact with weaker brothers as they continue to grow, Lord, and the liberty that you have provided to them, the freedom that they have, the ability to seek you and you the voice of your Holy Spirit on what place these liberties have or don't have in their life. And we pray, Lord, that our lives would be something that would be a great edification to them, those of us who've known you for a long time, and that they would experience great patience and great love from us as they're working through something that may be the hardest thing that they work through in life. And we ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're here this morning and you are not yet a Christian, there are going to be pastors and other men and women up in front immediately after the service, and they'd love to pray with you to become a Christian today.